Well, as I mentioned before, today is the first Sunday of Lent, which is this 40-day season, not counting Sundays, between Ash Wednesday, which was last Wednesday, and Easter. Lent is traditionally seen as a season of preparation for the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And during Lent, followers of Jesus are invited to take an honest look at our, at our lives, and ideally, we would be in conversation with Jesus, listening to him through the scriptures, asking him to reveal habits and attitudes that lead us to fear and, and anxiety and death. And, and that type of introspection, it isn't supposed to be morbid. Um, it's, about, it's about life. Contrary to popular misperception, Lent isn't primarily about giving things up. It's about doing what it takes to draw closer to Jesus. It's about responding to the love and grace of Jesus, who is our very source of life. Lent is about inviting us to lean in to life, and that's probably why Lent is called Lent. It's from this old English word, lecten, which means lengthening, and it came to refer to the lengthening of days, like the springtime, um, the season of greening and budding and birthing, the season of life. That's what Lent is about. Oftentimes, during the Lenten season, I'll preach a series that is aimed at helping us, like, walk through that time of, re- of reflection in a biblical and meaningful way. Uh, this year is no different than years past, but the providential fact exists that I don't need to preach a special series right now. It just so happens, happens that we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount together, and right now in the section of the Sermon on the Mount we're in, it's in this beautiful section that can really help us ask good questions about our lives and help us to grow in Christ. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be hearing Jesus address our motives in life, our relationship to money. He'll ask, uh, he'll ask us questions about our anxiety. He'll confront us on judging other people. None of us do that. Um, self-reflection in the spiritual life, and much, much more. It's a rich Uh, text that we're in right now. So with that, let's get started. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel of Matthew. No, not the whole thing, just just (laughs) chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 and 16 to 18. Jesus is speaking here. Beware of practicing your righteousness to be noticed by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, when you pray, do not use meaningless, or do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, into the store closet of your house, if you have one of those, and pray to your father who's in secret, And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, whenever you fast, 
Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do so that they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by people when they're fasting. Because truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by people, but by your Father who sees what is done in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Lord, thank you for this warning. Thank you that you're getting to something beneath the surface here. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up this text to us, that we would understand not only what it meant, but what it means. Amen. You may be seated. So that's part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 5, I'll just remind us that Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the religious experts and the religious leaders, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Bible scholars and the preachers and teachers, the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were to ask a first century Jewish person what righteousness looked like, they might say lots of things. Definitely Sabbath keeping and, um, and uh, you know, reading your Torah and being part of synagogue or going to the temple. They would say lots of different things, but three things everyone would likely have in common on their short list of righteousness are prayer, particularly praying at regular intervals and regular occasions, almsgiving, which is giving money to the poor, that's different than temple sacrifices, it's different than tithing, and it wasn't optional. Almsgiving was a thing that good Jewish people did. It was one of the pillars of righteousness. So prayer, and almsgiving, and fasting, particularly fasting on particular days of the year, pre-festivals, times that were designated by the Jewish calendar. These three pillar practices of Judaism were foundational to right relatedness with God. That's what was believed. Three main things. So when people are thinking what it means to be a righteous Jewish person, they're thinking about prayer, and they're thinking about almsgiving, and they're thinking fasting, among other things. There's this great story quoted in a book by Willie and Noreen Au, The Discerning Heart, and it goes something like this. There was a master rabbi who had grown deep in his love and devotion to God over the years, and it came to him that he was being invited by Yahweh to live a personal life of simplicity, of, of very little material possessions, very little involvement in things. It was almost like a monastic life. And one day he found out that some of his disciples had been watching him, and that they too began selling their possessions and living a simplistic life, much younger men than he and he sort of confronted them and laughed at them. You're copying me, huh? And he says, of what use is it to copy my behavior without my motivation? They understood him better when he said, does a goat become a rabbi when it grows a beard? You see, the rabbi's life was motivated by love for God and an obedience to an invitation for, from God for him specifically to live a certain way. 
Now, yes, certain spiritual practices can help us access God and to love him more deeply and to grow as his disciples, but doing certain religious things for the applause of others or to impress someone else doesn't often bear much fruit. And Jesus speaks to this reality in bold terms when he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before people with the motive of being noticed by them. Beware of that type of attitude. Beware of that type of approach to the spiritual life. Jesus emphasizes that we should be constantly vigilant to this temptation, the temptation to practice our righteousness, our right-relatedness to God, and our right-relatedness to other people. Beware of practicing those things to be noticed by people. Otherwise, we have no reward with our Father who's in heaven. Now, this brings us to kind of an important term, reward. There's a lot of talk about reward in the Gospels, and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. And we live in a reward-based culture, actually. Uh, We have rewards for graduation, rewards for athletics. We have rewards for birthdays. And we've even figured out how to get rewards for Jesus's birthday, haven't we? Um, we, we, we live in a self-esteem-driven culture. Children nowadays often get rewards in athletics for first place and second place and third place and tenth place and the dreaded participation award. Everyone gets an award because we've got to feel good. And all this to say our reward-driven culture tells us at least two things. You have to earn your recognition. You have to earn your love. You have to earn your acceptance. That's the one thing it tells us. The other thing it tells us is because everyone gets rewards that eh, rewards are pretty trivial. So we read this statement by Jesus about the Father rewarding us, and we don't know what to do with that half the time. Like, what reward does Jesus give us, or what reward does the Father give us? A trophy, or a certificate, or a participation award? And do we have to earn something from him? Doesn't he just love us already? And because we don't know what to do quite with this reward mindset, we pretend that (laughs) we're too mature for rewards. Everyone in here is too mature for rewards, right? And so we exalt this ideal called altruism. Altruism, right? We exalt the ideal that you should do good things without any thought of yourself that you should just do that because it's the right thing to do, and that is the unspoken ideal uh, behind the scenes. And of course, if you do that enough, well, you probably get rewarded by people's praise, and maybe a Nobel Prize, and probably a book deal or a spot on a talk show. So, you know, altruism. Now, here's what I think. First, I think we're all made to please someone. Uh, We're all made to please someone. Humans appear predisposed to desire rewards. Every single human I know likes to be acknowledged. We can't escape it. I think that God made us that way, to desire acceptance and praise and and to know that we belong. We're made that way. Interestingly, very young human beings rarely ask for certificates or trophies. They don't ask for pay raises or uh, book deals. You know what they usually ask for is your approval. Mommy, mommy, look at the worm I found. It's the biggest one I've seen today. Aren't you impressed? Daddy, daddy, look at my outfit. Do you think I'm beautiful? 
Auntie, auntie, listen to me sing this song from Encanto for the hundredth time. Didn't I do a good job? Grandma, grandpa, look at my, look at my drawing. Come to reci- my recital. Watch my game. I want to know that you care about me. I want your attention. And as we get older, and the pain of rejection makes us feel more cynical, we kind of think we've grown out of that desire for adoration, but we do not. We never grow out of it. In fact, most of us crave it. And some seek it in official certificates and awards, performance awards that are certified by the board or by the academy. Mom says good job to her teenager or young adult, but she's supposed to say that. She's my mom, so goes the internal monologue. And what really matters is that the Association of Coaches says I'm good, or that the Hollywood Academy says I'm good, or that the academic dean says I could, because they're the only ones with their credential to tell me I'm good. And what happens to most of us who can't be the star athlete or the academic or the actor or the musician? It's no wonder that addiction and depression and self-harm and even suicide are rampant, and it's not just our culture. It is a global issue, a human issue. Our Father created us to desire Him, and He, and he loves us, And he wants us to know that we're loved. More on that in a moment. But this brings me to my second point. I think, let's just just talk about altruism for a minute. I think altruism, that's doing good things with no expectation of reward, I think think it's a delusion. I'm not sure it's possible for anyone to do anything with perfectly pure motives. I mean, we are so affected by sin and doubt that whatever we do, no matter how good, it's always with some mixed motive. Some mixed motive. Even the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he claims not to be a good judge of his own motives. His heart is too corrupt, and he leaves it up to God to judge. And I think think that's a kind of a healthy attitude. It sounds to me like Paul is poor in spirit, and last I checked, Jesus said, flourishing are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in his teaching, Jesus gives three illustrations of how this might look, three religious activities that he expects disciples to be engaged in, generous giving, prayer, and fasting. These three are illustrations. They're not an exhaustive list of acts of righteousness. They're illustrations of how we may get our motives out of whack. So while giving, praying, and fasting are important topics in their own right and worthy of sermons on their own, we're not going to focus on the mechanics of how to pray and how to fast and how to give in this particular sermon, because in this message we're going to look at Jesus's warnings and the life he invites us into. So to paint a vivid picture of what he's talking about, Jesus draws on the language of the drama or the theater. Before the Romans had conquered Palestine, which was who was in charge when Jesus was walking the earth, um, it was occupied by the Greeks. And Alexander the Great had this mission, not only to conquer the world, but to turn the world into an extension of Greece itself. So everywhere he went, 
He set up Greek-style gymnasiums, Greek-style libraries. That's why there's an Alexandria, and one of the greatest libraries in the ancient world was in Alexandria, after Alexander the Great, and where? Egypt. Like, he was trying to make little, little Greeks, Greeces everywhere. And so gyms and libraries and arenas and theaters, you can find them all over the world where Alexander the Great expanded his empire. The point being that the language of the Greek theater was well known to the Jews of Jesus' day. And the actors in these plays in the Greek theater were called hypocrites or hypocrites. That's where we get that word, hypocrite. Um, why are they called that? Because the actors in the ancient world in the Greek theaters were all men. And even when they would play the female parts, and so they would wear these masks, the hypocrites would change their faces. They would change their masks to become whatever character they were playing at the moment. So far, scholars are unanimous in believing that Jesus is the first teacher ever to use the term hypocrite to describe the duplicity of the human heart, how we can present one way but really feel or believe a different way, right? That's being a hypocrite. We, we know that in colloquial language, right? He said that doing good deeds in God's name is not the whole point. If you're doing religious things but the reward you're seeking is the pat on the back from other people, then that's the reward you'll get. Those are your wages. Jesus mentions prayer. Don't make it a show of what you know when you're practicing prayer. Like, Jesus isn't against praying in public or praying in group settings or praying at a worship gathering, but he, he does all those things, actually, in different ways in the Gospels. But as Dale Bruner put it, group prayer thrives only where private prayer is alive. Group prayer thrives only where private prayer is alive because when we come together and pray as a group, we come together as individuals. And if we don't have a private prayer life, what are we gonna add to the group prayer life? And if I don't have a private prayer life, I'm gonna be anxious about how to pray in this group and be more focused on saying stuff that's not gonna make me look dumb or to impress you than actually speaking to God. So group prayer thrives where private prayer is alive. Dale Bruner. Then he talks about almsgiving. We are called to tithe at our house of worship and to give generously to the poor on our own time, uh, to the needy among us. It's okay to be well thought of in the community for doing good by other people. It's okay it's actually a good thing to have a good reputation of being a generous person. In fact, in chapter 5 of this very same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus encourages us to let our light shine before people that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Jesus says those same words. But do you see the difference here? We're to do deeds of righteousness for the glory of God, not for the praise of other people. The motives matter. The same can be said for fasting, a tried and true spiritual practice that's still helpful for today uh, of reminding our bodies, hey body, you work for me. I don't work for your little impulses. And you're, you're, I need to remind my body of that. I am a creature of comfort. Uh, fasting can be a positive practice that helps us grow in dependence and obedience on Jesus. But if we do it to impress other people, then that's the wages we'll receive for our efforts. And we can apply this not only to giving and to praying and to fasting, but 
to going to church and to preaching sermons and to leading worship and going to Bible studies and working with children and, and volunteering in the community. I mean, anything, any act of righteousness we can apply this to. And, and I think that there's two traps to look out for that Jesus is talking about. The first trap, of course, is the addiction of praise of people. I'm not saying encouragement is bad. You, you got to hear that loud and clear. In fact, we are called to encourage other people. Jesus says, don't stop encouraging. Like, I've heard people say this before. I don't want them to get a big head, so I'm not going to encourage them. Wouldn't want to tempt them to, uh, I don't know, to seek acclaim. Like, no one's seeking your acclaim if you just say good job. Like, that's actually a biblical thing to do. So we're not saying don't encourage each other. And I'm not saying it's bad to receive the applause of others. What I believe Jesus to be saying is that our primary motive for doing right by God should be love of God, not the praise of other people. It's this addictive trap that robs us of greater joy. If human applause is the reward we're really looking for, then that's the reward we'll get, and it'll be that. The second trap on the other end of the spectrum is the addiction to self-righteousness. Again, I'm not saying that you can't feel good about yourself for living in a Christ-like way. And I hope as you grow in Christ-likeness, you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I made that decision. I'm proud that I'm on this journey of being like Christ. In fact, one of the great side effects of doing good can being the great feeling of like, I have a purpose in life, and it feels good to be on the same page with Jesus. It, it feels good to be a part of a community that's doing um, the, Lord, the Lord's work. But the warning here is not to do things for the sole reason of making yourself feel great about yourself, which can lead to pride. Jesus' illustrations of hands not knowing what the other hand is doing, of praying in a closet, they're not laws to follow and to feel smug about, but they're, they're there to reveal the heart to us. And so there's both traps of seeking applause from others and seeking applause from ourselves, and both of those things mean that we're not seeking God first and not seeking his kingdom first, which is a real mistake. Hear this. Jesus is not saying, don't seek a reward for doing good. He's saying, seek a reward from the Father and not from people. Our motives matter. Are we living for God? Are we living related to God? Living to love and be loved by God, our Father, or are we living to impress other people? It's a simple question that I think we need to, to wrestle with on a regular basis because I always slip into one of those categories. I found something very interesting in studying for this message. And when Jesus talks about rewards, he uses two different Greek words. I know it's like nerd moment, but it's kind of cool. Um, when he talks about the reward that we get from other people's praise, he uses a word that is mystos. And it's the same word that you might use for getting paid, like your paycheck or your wages for doing some kind of labor. So I do the labor, I get a mystos, I get wages. But when Jesus speaks about our reward from the Father, he uses another Greek word, apodidomi. And this has a similar meaning in the marketplace of wages and pay, but it's interesting that, that it also had a, a religious meaning in the first century. And it's taken on a special meaning from the Jewish people. And it's associated with God 
coming to his people to restore creation and to make all things new. That was his apodidomy. It's associated with salvation and God's presence. So what I want to argue is that Jesus isn't saying do good things because the Father will give you better wages or a better trophy or a better certificate than the applause of people. Nor is he saying have a good life or live a good life so that you can receive salvation. He's saying that the Father is already beginning to make the world new that he's come near, that he's died for us, and that he waits with open arms for us to come home, to receive us, not to earn the great reward of knowing how much he loves us. There's gospel in these words for wages. I love that. So if you come to church all the time, or even sometimes, you hear over and over again, you should, if you come to this church, how much God loves you. I talk about it all the time, how he's your father in heaven who died for you and desires to lavish you with his love and acceptance. But it's one thing to hear that over and over again and to repeat it and parrot it in your head, and it's quite another thing for it to travel with the 15 inches to your heart, some of you tall people a lot more. A lot of us doubt the love of God as it actually functions in our lives. And so we think, you know what, I better hedge my bets and look out for myself. And we think, I better make sure that other people notice me just in case the Father doesn't. So how do we do this? How do we do this life without being hypocrites? Well, I think the first step is kind of we don't. Like, I think the first step is honesty and just confessing our mixed motives. Listen, the further I go on in this life of trying to follow Jesus, I think the more aware I'm becoming that my motives simply are mixed. That I just, I've got all these strands of my background and my brokenness and grace and good motives, but also they're just mixed. And so I think, I think maybe a step is just saying, God, I'm, I'm a mix. And you don't call me to be perfect, you call me to be honest. Uh, we don't stop doing what is right and what is good because we don't have 100% pure motives. We wouldn't do anything if we did that. We would never get on with anything in life. But we can at least be real before God and other people with our motives. And I think that that's what confession does for us. That's what prayer can do for us. So that's the first step, be honest with our mixture of motives. Second, we can pray to be able to receive more of God's love, to really experience it and to know it in our hearts. To, to maybe, maybe one of the steps is to meditate on tonight's scripture that Jen read earlier, Psalm 139. Read it in different translations if it's super familiar to you, just to kind of get a different set of words and, and, and approach to it. Consider what it means for God to have formed you and knit you together. Yes, you, just the way you are. What does that mean for me? Consider what it means that this God is with you wherever you go. Even when you duck into the shadow of sin and shame, he's there. He's for you. He adores you. He is always ready to receive you when you seek him. The Father is proud of you. 
I know you're deflecting hardcore right now because I do that all the time. The Father's proud of you. The Father's proud of you. He's proud of you. And so we doubt and we think we need to look at all these other places, but the Father loves us. And I would say on that, that second point when we're seeking to have, you know, more, accept more of the love of God, I would say get around people that tell you that regularly, right? Get around people who are around the scriptures, who are also on a journey of loving and being loved by God. Get around people who, who encourage the best in you. God has not left us without witnesses to his love. We have the spirit, the scriptures, the church body, the sacraments. And I would say, kids, get around friends who encourage the best in you. There's a lot of, oh man, there's so many insecure people that want to tear us down. Get around people who think the best of you. That's God's encouragement to us. When we begin to receive the fullness of God's love, our motives toward righteousness will change, and we will desire the way of the Lord more and more. All right, and third and finally, we can regularly give thanks. We can regularly reflect on God's faithfulness and generosity in becoming human and dying for us and offering us new life. We can give thanks for the sunshine, and this is going to be an amazing sunset, um, for, for life and breath and for this community of faith and for the little pleasures of a warm shower or a good meal or a conversation or a hug. Remember those before COVID? Oh yeah, they're, they're back. Hugs are back. Thanksgiving reminds us of tangible ways that the Father loves us and rewards us. As we prepare for communion, let's take a moment to be silent. Let's prepare now to, by, by confessing our mixed motives, our self-righteousness, let's not only ask for forgiveness, but, but new hearts that receive the love of God. May the Spirit of God change our motives and shape our hearts toward His will. Let's, let's take a moment of silence.